Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 140 for June MMXVII. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by Alien Theory on YouTube. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Support TBU and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to thebatmanuniverse.net. Well, I saw two great movies in the span of a week, I guess I could say. So first of all, I want to explain why Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by Alien Theory. And no, I did not mess up and there's no promo there. But Alien Theory is this great YouTube channel and he also has a Facebook 
page that explores different questions about the alien mythology, you know, the xenomorphs and things like that. And I've just been enjoying those videos, and so I thought I would uh, pimp him out a little bit. So I did see Alien Covenant. It's all been building up to this, checking out news, talking with my friend Jacob about it, getting really pumped up for it, and I finally got to see it. So because that that is very <laughs> tangentially related to Barbara Gordon, you can stay tuned to the end of the show where you will have a pre-show or pre-movie interview with the people that I went to see the movie with, and then there will be a post-movie review with both of them, and then I come back and share some more detailed thoughts. So that's going to be at the end of the show. And if you haven't seen it yet, you don't want to be spoiled. You may not want to listen, but otherwise, lots of fun there. So be sure to check that out. The other movie I saw was Wonder Woman, which was great. So I saw it on Thursday before it came out at 7, and then I saw it again Saturday afternoon, and I loved it. There was so much, I think, riding on this movie just for the future of, I think, female-led franchises or just movies in general, and she... She delivered. I love Gal Gadot already from Fast and the Furious, obviously, but she just really was Wonder Woman. I love the Themyscira. The backstory, I think, was wonderful. Cutest girl ever that was playing young Diana, getting to know different Amazons, having some humor mixed in with all of that. And then as Diana goes off into the world, sort of showcasing her naivete a little bit. And then we also start to see her grow. And then, of course, there's a tragic moment where realizations come to her and she realizes that, you know, mankind is not as good as she thought it was. Great chemistry, I think, between her and Steve. I was a little iffy on something that happened between the two of them, but I guess I'll let it go. And then, of course, the final boss battle. I I just thought it was amazing. I loved it. Great story. I think it really delivered on the character itself. I don't think some other people were arguing. I felt bad because I didn't defend her that, you know, of course she's going to be over-sexualized, but I don't think she was. I think it was very tastefully done and uh, costumed and everything. Yeah, like really poignant moments, comedic moments, but not too like Iron Man, over-the-top comedic. And I think the only thing that was super weird is just the bad guy having kind of his goofy face looking through the mask and everything I just don't want to reveal what you know who the bad guy is but I kind of wish that maybe he would have some sort of not a mask but an alternate identity which often happens with those types of people so then he would let down that mortal guys and then look like somebody else because it, it kind of took me out of it I was like it's it's just that guy right there it looks kind of funny that would be my only negative but I certainly give it an A plus I recommend you go see it and it's already breaking records which is great so I think we're you know Electra and Catwoman are things of the past so please go see Wonder Woman and support Wonder Woman. Unfortunately, folks, this is another recap episode. I was looking through, I had a thought of actually reviewing one of the stories, but as I read it, I thought, eh, it's not really worth that time. So again, I'm just going to give you very brief synopses on what's happening with these issues that Barbara Gordon's appearing. And again, I will say what she's doing in there and if there's anything worthwhile to glean from her appearance. So we've got five issues that we're going to get through today. 
And we're going to start with Detective Comics number 706. And yes, kind of going backwards in time as well as being contemporaneous as well as being future with my previous episode, but just stick with me. So Detective Comics number 706, Lethal Pursuits. Part two of a Clue Master and Riddler team up. So she was not in 705, which is part one. The cover date was February 1997. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Graham Nolan, anchor David Roach, colorist Gloria Vasquez, and Android Images. Batman and Robin try desperately to keep up with the Riddler's puzzles before the Clue Master is blown to smithereens. So apparently their partnership did not work out very well. This goes into Detective Comics number 707. Riddled, which came out in March 1997, and the same credits as the previous part. Batman and his team finally solve the puzzle of the Riddler's nefarious scheme, but will they be in time to save Gotham? So where Oracle comes into play, or Barbara, is... In part two, Batman tells Robin to work with Oracle to figure out the number puzzles that have been coming at them quite frequently. And number one, the fact that Batman knows that Oracle is probably the best go-to person to figure these out. And number two, just setting up again the Tim Oracle team, which I think has been a good fit ever since Legacy. It just seems they're very comparable. And uh, I, I like that relationship. I think that they get along and you can see, I think, their high regard and respect for one another as they are working through these different puzzles. So that's basically what you can get out of those two issues. We then get into the story that I considered reviewing as a whole, but decided not to. And that is Detective Comics number 708 through 710. So 708 is Heart of Glass. Cover date, April 1997. Again, writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Graham Nolan, inker Bill Sienkiewicz, and colorist Gloria Vasquez and Android Images. On his deathbed, a vengeful mob boss puts out contracts and several enemies. Unfortunately for Gotham, Deathstroke and Gunhawk are two of the assassins who take on the jobs. This goes to Detective Comics number 709, Heart of Stone, May 1997. Same credits as before. Lucius Fox is shot. Another victim on Gunhawk and Deathstroke's hit list. Batman must race to intercept the killers before they claim another victim. And then this goes into the finale, which is Detective Comics 710, Heart of Ice, June 97. Same credits as the previous two. After going head-to-head with Deathstroke, Batman must do the unthinkable to stop Gunhawk from murdering J. Devlin Davenport. Use a gun! That's right, people. Batman uses a gun. And I think sometimes people actually say that he would never use a gun. But I'm pretty sure that, number one, in some of his first appearances, he actually has, like, a little pouch next to there. It looks like he's carrying a gun. And number two, this. So if anyone ever tries to say to you that Batman never used a gun and he hates them, you can say, well, yes, of course he hates them, but you're wrong about him never using a gun. So here we go. So Oracle is helping to find the connections between the victims as well as possible suspects. She's mostly speaking or having conversations with Robin about the case, but there's also a scene where she speaks to Alfred, but again on the case, and that's actually... A pretty fun little (laughs) conversation between the two of them because Alfred's like buffing the cave floors, which is weird. At one point when she doesn't see a pattern between the victims, she does muse that it will take a few more deaths for a pattern to emerge. And Robin says that she better not let Batman hear that. We also see her in bed working as well as going to a set of reference shelves that she has in her apartment and talking about scanning pages from Gotham's Who's Who. 
there's a little shout out to uh, Shagalicious. So apparently Gotham has its own little who's who. I guess that's kind of a, a meta sort of thing. Who knows? So again, just research helping out. Again, her point person being Tim, and we get to see her in different parts of her apartment. Uh, we see that, you know, if the job needs doing, she's going to do it wherever she has to. So when she's sitting in bed and she's got a tray on her lap and she's working, yeah, and of course she would have a reference section in her apartment. So I think we get, I mean, not too much to take away from this, but we do, it's always nice to see different aspects of her life and also different places in her apartment and see that times really haven't changed for her and from her past as being a librarian. So there you go. Uh, Great. I I enjoyed the stories. I didn't read 705, so that was a little, you know, hopping in at 706 and 707 was like basically what Professor Allen makes me, puts me through when he asked me on his show and I have to read an out-of-context comic. But otherwise, these were were fun stories. Just, as I said, I think not worthwhile a full review because it's not like Barbara Gordon was doing crazy things. It was just kind of her standard MO. So just get used to these little recaps, but I do recommend maybe going and searching those particular stories out. Well, now let's tackle some listener emails. Mail Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me wanna wag my tail. When it comes, I wanna wail. Most of this is actually coming from the Judas Contract special, which was episode 138. So I'm gonna go first to the website. First up from Ian Miller, a.k.a. Ian Prime. Very much enjoyed this episode, despite my general dislike of the Teen Titans concept. For me, the characters always suffer by having to compete for screen time, especially when they're so radically different in skill sets and background. I've been interested in the Judas Contract because of the upcoming The Lazarus Contract, since I'm following the current Deathstroke series by Christopher Priest, and it promises to tie into this classic tale. Having watched parts of the animated film, I have to disagree with Tom. I don't think the film is trying to show Tara being redeemed. She does say Beast Boy, but the reason she brings the facility down on herself isn't because she feels guilty, but because she's completely overwhelmed and literally out of her mind with rage and despair. I actually really dislike the, oh, she's evil, narration in the comics. There's no sympathy, no hint of anything except insanity, which is kind of unfair to mental illness. So I found the more sympathetic but not redeemed portrayal of her self-destruction in the climax a lot more powerful. That being said, the depiction of Deathstroke in the Judas Contract comics was really fascinating, whereas he's kind of just a mysterious evil guy in the film, greatly weakening the depth of his character. Well, Ian, I think I'll let, potentially, Tom respond to that on your own. I think he and I uh, both kind of wanted her to be evil for evil's sake, just because I think, I mean, that was how she was intended to be the anti-Kitty Pride. And so, well, I, I mean, I guess we disagree, because I feel like she was sort of uh, wishy, not wishy-washy is not the best word, but it, it seemed like her evilness was in doubt, especially with her her kiss with Beast Boy and and certain moments and everything. Uh, As for Deathstroke, I think uh, I agree with you there that in the comics, I think it it was more well-rounded, especially his motives. And here you get what you get because of how he was betrayed and 
Batman and Robin, or what was it, Batman and Son, the first appearance. So there you go. But hopefully Tom will respond to you about that. And uh, <laughs> But good points nonetheless. And next is Chris Carnes. He says, good show, good info, and you both covered a lot of ground. I had very low expectations with respect to the movie. The comic book story was one of my personal all-time favorites, and I didn't want to see it with any different characters. Further, although I am warming up slash getting used to it, the DC slash WB house animation style, similar noses on characters, hasn't been my cup of tea. With all that, I confess I like this much more than I thought I would. Although I miss Donna, I'm glad she did get an appearance. I think it did a good job overall conveying the story elements and characterization for the format, and I like the vocal talents of the cast. As someone who is buying slash reading New Teen Titans prior, during, and after the Judas Contract, initial release in comic books, I have to tell you the panels depicting the reveal of Tara, complete with the ominous shading on her face, working for Deathstroke and New Teen Titans number 34, mind you, a few issues before the Judas Contract played out, gave what pre-internet fandom I was involved with a hell of an emotional gut punch. All my friends were shocked when this issue came out. It was widely talked about and sparked debate and conversations. I don't know if 34 is collected with the Judas Contract trade paperbacks, but to me, if you wanted the weight and impact of the story in comic book form, you should at least go back that far. Hell, maybe even to the introduction of Terra. Back then, the months I slash we waited for the culmination of this plot point revelation to get to the Judas Contract story was excruciating. Actually, the name of the Benny Mardones or Mardons? Mm. Benny Mardones song is titled Into the Night. If I Could Fly was a line in the song, and indeed a very creepy song. And if you thought the song was creepy, you should see the video. She's just 16 years old. Leave her alone, they say. Well, thanks for that, Chris, for making me watch that video. No, if 34 is collected in the Judas contract, I can't remember. Tom will be the one to let me know about that. But I will say that he gave me her introduction and everything. So I agree with you that starting with all of that scene, her first interaction, especially with Beast Boy, because he's the one who finds her when she's going crazy out in the city, is great just from the beginning uh, of, of that run and sowing the seeds and everything. So I agree with you there. As for Judas Contract, I think it it already has her pre-established as uh, you know a member of the team and everything, but I can't recall specific issue numbers. So again, I will call upon Tom and hopefully he will respond to this. Now over to my emails. I just have one email and it is coming from... Rob Myers from the Robin Everyone Loves the Drake podcast and soon Damien. 
He says, hello, Stella and Tom. I'm sending this to both of you to say how much I enjoyed the show. It's always great to hear the both of you together talk, laugh, and discuss, well, anything, to be honest. I may have been buying comics since the mid-80s for quite some time, but even though I knew of the Titans, I did not pick up my first Titans book until 1989 and the crossover story with Batman in A Lonely Place of Dying, which set me on my way as a Tim Drake guy, and that's the path I took following Tim. My reading of any Titans book would stop there until Tim reappeared with the new Teen Titans again in issue number 65. So until the 2000s Jeff Johns Titans run, that would be the last Titans book I'd pick up. It wasn't until Tom's show Taking Flight I would get a crash course on the Titans and their history. My history and knowledge of the Judas Contract would come from the DK books, DC Batman Encyclopedias, and other books of that nature. So I'd read those and get broad strokes of that story and who the characters were. Going into the animated film, I really brought no outside knowledge or emotion other than the synopsis type of history book I had read. I could look at it and enjoy it as a connective film it is within the DC animated universe. This has been on a must-read list of mine for years. I started collecting single issues where I could find them, and of course, Tales of the Teen Titans 44 is an expensive book now, and that was the only issue I was missing, and I was too stubborn to read it digitally, so I waited. At the time I am writing this, I just picked up the new Jews contract trade, so I will officially read it for the first time as a whole piece. For the film, I enjoyed it. It's hard for me to really give a 100% discussion point since not having read the source material yet, but I do think it works well for the most part. Knowing how much Tom loves the Titans, I was eager to hear his take on it. I agree with the opening. It should have been how Terror joined the group. Damien, I agree, should have escaped and worked with Dick to infiltrate Hive. They have already set up Dick and Damien working together in Bad Blood. It just would have made more sense. I do think the DC animated universe is pretty decent for the most part. Sidebar, the killing joke is separate from this continuity. Like Tom said, if you're going to have Damien in here, use him more than what he was relegated to. That being said, for some reason I thought Tom did like Damien. You're so wrong maybe there will be this damien podcast pop before too long once this guy figures out a name for it and tom will have to come on and explain his thoughts just saying Tomasi and Gleason's run on Batman and Robin, New 52, won me over. And Titus, I was like, ah. Okay, I think I just turned 16 by typing that. Well, this email has gone on long enough. I always enjoy both of your shows. I'm just so bad at writing in. Please forgive. I'm trying to correct that. So I'm looking for the right spot to have you on the Drake. And you're always a joy to listen to and love BTO. And Tom's pop culture is a blast. I would love to have you back on the Drake at some point again. Keep up the great shows. Thanks for letting me ramble, Rob. Myers. Thanks, Rob, for writing in and giving us a bit of your Titans history, which I think is always great. And that's pretty awesome. You're going to start a Damien podcast. I actually have a soft spot in my heart for Damien, so I approve of that. And I fell in love with him over the the Brian Q. Miller backroll run because I just felt like Stephanie really humanized him and took him from this assassin into an actual, you know, 12 year old boy um so i can't wait for that show to start and also please let me know what you think of judas contract once you finally read it for the first time well thank you to everyone who wrote in remember you can send any questions or comments to me at backworldoracle at gmail.com and you can also if you have specific comments to tom you can send them my way and i will forward them to him I'm going to take a break now, and when I come back, I will review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, number 10, and Batgirl, number 63, a.k.a. Batgirl, number 11. But first, Zias' Radio Hour featuring Bird Song by Florence and the Machine. Well, I didn't tell anyone, but a bird flew by. 
sure I might get some comments about that song because it's a little dark, but just trying to find some uh, some different bird-themed songs. Okay, well, we have basically some finales here for both books, or at least I assume for Batgirl and the Birds of Prey. It's pretty clear for Batgirl. So here we go. Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, number 10, Blackbird, part 3, Blackbird Rise. Writers Julie Benson and Shauna Benson, artists Rohe Antonio, colorist Alan Pasolacqua, and John Rauch. After catching the reader up to speed, Batgirl, Huntress, Green Arrow, Nightwing, and Gemini land at Blackbird's empty nest, get it, and find only Owen, who tells them about Donna and Blackbird's latest power. Helena makes a mysterious call when Oracle lets the crew know that Black Canary has returned to the clock tower. Speaking of Oracle, he is out of those mysterious pills, and he is told by that unknown someone that he will not receive any more of those pills until Oracle arranges a meeting between him and the Birds of Prey. 
From the ground, the clock tower looks destroyed, but inside they find Dinah and are happily reunited. She says that Blackbird forced her to reveal all the secrets, including the tunnel that leads to the Batcave. Say what? All of which leads to Batgirl decking Dinah to the shock of others. <gasps> Dinah is actually Blackbird, and there is no secret tunnel. The team is then attacked by the real Dinah and Kimmy, another one of Blackbird's students. Blackbird tries to use her recently acquired mental powers on Huntress, but appears that the call she put in earlier was to Agent Number 1, a.k.a. Patron, who has gifted her with Hypnos. The team needs help and knowledge as to how to bring down Blackbird, but Oracle is little help without his pills. Owen lets them know that he could never mentally control more than one person at a time, so Blackbird has to be stretched pretty thin. Batgirl and Oracle use that fact to attack Dinah at once and snap her out of it. The team links up psychically to protect themselves from Blackbird's attack, then bring Kimmy out of it. Altogether, they trap Blackbird, and Huntress uses her hypnos implant to interrogate her. Blackbird says she can't give the powers back, but Huntress ensures that Blackbird forgets their identities and remembers she was defeated by the Birds of Prey. Blackbird ends up in Arkham Asylum with a cloth over her eyes and strict instructions to the guards for her to stay away from other metahumans. Nightwing goes back to Blue Haven with Gemini, planning to set her up with a support group. Dinah sets Owen up with Helena and a future. Batgirl finally decides to bring Oracle fully into the fold and invites him to the clock tower. He notes the irony of this and asks if they can help his friend. Next time, we add it up. So, as like I said, far as I know, this is the conclusion of the Blackbird storyline, and I thought that overall it was a strong storyline. I think a pretty formidable villain that can take powers, like I said, very much like an Amazo, and it was great the way that the cast of characters came together to help and really used, I think, both their brain and their brawn to take her down. So overall, I really like the story arc. I will say that Owen's mind wipe seems slightly inconsistent. He doesn't remember some things, but he remembers others, like the fact that he lost his powers, the fact that when he used them, he was weakened in some areas, but, you know, he doesn't, I, it's just very inconsistent, like I said. What are these mysterious pills? And when Gus is acting off, why doesn't anyone call him on it? We've been mistrusting Gus, I think, for this entire time since issue number one, right? I haven't really fully brought him into the fold emotionally. And here we have the birds that are ready to accept him. And his assistance has been spotty. There have been some really weird moments. This arc in particular, and so kind of comes at a bad time that they finally decided to trust him i suppose we're supposed to feel sorry for him because he is portrayed as struggling with his actions even though he is clearly betraying them but you know he's still doing something pretty bad it, it, this goes back to the first arc when he was doing all that stuff for the villains and he was trying to excuse himself but he was still working for pretty bad people people had gotten killed a cop had gotten seriously injured or killed and i don't i sometimes i just don't think you can excuse some of the things that someone does is it good or bad that it's Babs and Babs only that knows it's Blackbird disguised as Dinah and Ollie doesn't even realize? Uh, does that just go to prove that men <laughs> don't pay attention as well? Um, and I guess this sisterhood is, is stronger than something that Dinah and Ollie would have. But at the same time, I guess you could just argue that Ollie, of course, wouldn't have known that 
there was a not a tunnel leading from the clock tower to the bat cave and also just some word choices that Dinah was saying. So I guess you can either argue either way, but I do think it's funny that Babs was the one to figure it out. Babs was the one to clock her. And then you see everyone shocked uh, faces, <gasps> which was pretty funny. I like that Helena's past as matron comes into play, especially with the hypnos. At first I was confused what they were talking about because clearly Nightwing knew when she said, I need to make a call. And he says, are you sure? Something like that. And uh, I thought, who, what? Uh, But then later on you realize what's happening, but kind of at the very end. So it's good to read it again and, and see like, oh, okay, now I get it. The fighting sequence is great because it highlights different power sets. It shows the difficulty of the match, and it also calls, I think, here for more brains on the part of the heroes than bronze, and also just working together in a very nice moment. Everyone has to work together to defeat Blackbird, even those former students who are now sidelined, which I thought was interesting. So like I said, really taking in or almost broadening the cast because, you know, we go from three to maybe seven people that were working together to take down Blackbird. Now, at the end, we see that the villain is defeated, but I think we also get a sense that she might return. And quite honestly, I think she's in a bad place because you tell the Arkham guards that she should stay away from metahumans, but if we could trust the Arkham guards to do their job, then people would not be escaping in Arkham. So I, you know, I kind of doubt that she's not going to escape and then get more powers, which is going to be really, really bad. But you have to also think about it that any power she gets, that villain would then be powerless, right? And also Arkham is more like the insane people, but there, there, I think would be people like Poison Ivy, who's got some control over things and. Uh, maybe Livewire, so who knows, but I, we'll see her return sometime. Hopefully not soon, because I don't like when villains are used too soon, but maybe um, put her in a nice rotation after a while. We do get a happy-ish ending for Owen and Gemini as deserving what they need. I think Gemini certainly is going to have a more difficult time moving on since she actually killed her friends, but I like that we bring into play what's been going on in the Nightwing title with that support group, as well as Helena and her teaching side and everything. So overall, I'm going to give this issue 9 out of 10, and I think that the whole arc is very much a 9 out of 10 birds as well. Now into my final book, and it is a finale. It's Batgirl number 63, a.k.a. Batgirl number 11, Son of Penguin finale. Writer Hope Larson, pencils and cover Chris Wildgoose, inks John Lamb, colorist Matt Lopez. Batgirl bursts in on Black Sun and Penguin just as a flash retirement party breaks into Penguin's office. Yeah. Black Sun corrects Batgirl and says it's not a flash mob, but a murmuration. Oh, it's an automatopoeia. And that his vector suit can connect the points of the data he has mined and make anyone do anything he desires. Batgirl realizes that a murmuration is what you call a flock of starlings, also known in Denmark as Sort Soul, translated as Black Sun. See how we got there? Black Sun, the villain, tells the mob to kill Penguin, but Batgirl saves him. Too bad he won't help her in return. Batgirl goes chasing after Black Sun, but he has corrupted some footage of her and now portrays her to the world as a vigilante gone rogue. He plans on purging the streets of Burnside and making it a safe again, like a Safe Streets 2.0. Another mob of 
people attacks Batgirl and she escapes. She realizes that she needs to go somewhere. His signal will not transmit. And she thinks back to an otherwise useless scene in the bathroom where she learns from other people that Prospect Pine Park is useless with technology. At Burnside Square, Black Sun is standing atop of a ship sunk in a cement. Yeah, IDK. And talks of how he will make Burnside great again. When suddenly Nightwing appears and accosts Black Sun, telling him of his inadequacies. Take that as you will. A chase ensues, which brings them both to Prospect Pine Park, and Nightwing is actually Batgirl, (gasps) playing on Ethan's jealousies. His minions lose their mind control, and Batgirl kicks Ethan's suit, which shorts it and begins harming Ethan, actually burning him, or electrocuting him. Batgirl uses some bat fire extinguisher after some time standing there and watching all of this transpire. True. Later, at a re-warming party for the return of Frankie to the apartment, we see all is right again with Alicia and Joe, and they found a good doctor and are moving forward with the baby plans. At a hospital, Ethan has burns on 90% of his body. Two of Penguin's minions kidnap him and bring him to Penguin, who is now a proud papa, because Ethan is ugly, and now they can be together. Next, Troubled Waters. Okay, I first want to say that I want more of an idea how his murmuration, Black Sun's murmuration, actually works. Now, I assume it has to do with cell phones. So if you don't have one, you wouldn't necessarily be controlled. And I guess it's emitting a sort of signal. But it just seems that the more fantastical something is, the more it needs to be explained. And so to just say that his data mining has, you know, collecting everything has allowed him to control people, I kind of want more explanation as to how. Because the data from one person is not going to match the data from another person. So how is it all compiled? What's actually going out? You know, I, I assume it's a signal. But again, explanations, I think, are good. The murmuration in Denmark seems like a stretch. Uh, Why would he go with that language all of a sudden to come up with a name? Kind of, what? That's really your... You're sorting through... You're you're hitting the bottom of the barrel is what I'm trying to say if if that's where we're going here. I'm not surprised that Penguin didn't help Batgirl, but I am surprised he didn't do anything. Normally, the Penguin holds quite a bit of a grudge. Again, we get Batgirl's public approval put in jeopardy, which happened in the Burnside run, if you recall. How many times will this continue to happen? Uh, After, I I think people probably need to just, you know, trust in Batgirl. Also, other people try not to bring her approval ratings down or her reputation down and and focus on something else. But because is that all she has, her reputation? I mean, clearly she's built on something else. And also Batman doesn't seem too concerned about his reputation. So are we drawing a distinction between Barbara Gordon and Bruce Wayne and that she does care about her reputation more than other things? So I don't know. I just have a problem with that sort of thing. Of course, you know, it doesn't get blown out of proportion and go this whole long arc but still the the threat was there why is there a partial ship in cement does burnside have some sort of pirate origin i do not know here's a good question is black sun trying to create a utopia could you potentially agree with what black sun is doing you but you just say that he's going around in the, the right way i mean he wants to get rid of vigilantes he wants to clean up the streets But he's doing it in a pretty terrible way. Um, And also, I mean, homeless people 
you're basically, I mean, he's like getting rid of them, getting rid of them. And, and you got to do something else. That almost sounds like the cult, Batman, the cult, right? The homeless people were disappearing and everything. There's always, they're always the first ones to go for whatever reason. It seems like he is trying to create some sort of utopia or like a dictatorship where he is the supreme leader and everyone bows to him and the streets are safe again and Burnside is great again. I don't know. I don't know. Could you agree with his, uh, not his methods, but what he's trying to do? It seems like to a certain extent, besides being power mad, that he does maybe want to help uh, the people. It's just he's not a caring person. I'm glad that a useless scene like the bathroom one and the previous issue came back to mean something. I think that was good writing because otherwise when I was reading that, I'm like, why should I care about Barbara overhearing some conversation in the bathroom? It was a good play pertaining to being Nightwing, but I didn't think Ethan cared about Barbara that much, uh, that he would become that irate just seeing him. And he calls him a tool. And then we start talking about stamina, which was a double entendre. And I just hope to heaven that Batgirl didn't sleep with Ethan and off panel land. She didn't really have time to, but woo, she already was making mistakes being with him. So let's hope she didn't make one more mistake. We then get to a very troubling section where Batgirl nearly accidentally kills Black Sun and says she didn't mean to, but mostly blames it on the faulty suit. And then she takes all the time in the world to get the tech needed to put out the fire. Who is this? The Barbara Gordon I know would not stand there remarking on bad engineering, but would douse the flames right away and then feel really bad afterwards that she caused somebody else harm, even if it was a bad guy. I mean, this isn't just knocking somebody else. This is like you've basically changed their life irrevocably. Remember when that one guy fell to his death during a fight with Stephanie Brown and Brian Q. Miller's run? I think it was like the first run. It might have been Flood, the Flood. But she was really upset by that. And that stayed with her for a while. This, what we're reading here, just seems really callous. He could have died. He suffers life-changing damage, as is, just like I said. And, and here she's just watching him roast. And she's like, gee, that's all it took was one kick. And then is fumbling around and getting it. Like, he could have died. So I just, I don't understand who you are, Barbara Gordon. I don't understand how you can be written this way. Then later on in her narration during the party, she says that the good parts of their time together there meaning babs and ethan were almost worth all the bad what how could you say that oh my goodness this is so whack is all i have to say the good parts of their time together were almost worth all the bad he dumped her for no reason he's a bad guy she basically the only good was that one party guess what he's also a bad guy she was already suspicious of him and was practically using him to really just investigate him oh and he's a bad guy but hey that's okay because the good parts of their time together were almost worth all the bad i do like the rewarming party though clearly frankie needs to better choose her girlfriends in the future and maybe not move in with them so quickly and we also get a good feeling from alicia and joe so i think that's great 
the ending with Penguin and Ethan is also appropriate because, of course, he would accept him now that he's ugly and Penguin has seen what he can do. So I look forward to what that partnership will look like. But again, just like in Birds of Prey, I hope that this doesn't occur right away, but maybe later on. And also, Ethan... I don't know. He kind of has to accept his father, right? Because he was pushed away. So they'll be, maybe they'll go to some, one of those camps that you learn, you do some trusting exercises and things and you work together. Maybe that'll be good. This issue, I'm going to give a five out of 10. More mischaracterizations of Babs. I shouldn't be surprised really anymore. I think there are some stretches on things. I do want to know more about the technology. Sometimes over information is good because I think it shows the, it shows that the writer knows what he or she is talking about, so I would appreciate that. Overall, I didn't really care for this arc just because of, I think, it dragged Barbara Gordon down. Like, she was doing really weird stuff. Is, was she dating him? Was she not dating him? Was she pretending just so she could investigate him? Or was she not adding, a, acting like a, a battered housewife at that one point here, claiming that um, the good parts made up for the bad? almost letting him die, like really poor stuff. So I, I would give this probably a whole arc a 5 out of 10 bats as well. So I'm hoping that the next arc will be better, and we'll see. Barbara and Batgirl also appeared in Supergirl number 9, which we were promised from the annual there, where apparently it's not been forgotten that she's the fa- co-founder, or founder really, of Gordon Clean Energy, and she goes to a Clean Energy Expo and then also works with Supergirl. So apparently it takes another writer to bring that particular facet of her life back. Ironic. Now over to Chris for his Batman 66 slash 77 review. Ah, that's like seeing the final Jeopardy category as comic books when watching Jeopardy with a room full of non-comic book geeks. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Batfans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. I want to wish all the listeners out there on this side of the globe a nice, safe summer. Around this time last year, I was recuperating in a hospital, but it's been so far so good early this summer season, and I hope everyone has a good summer with whatever you have planned. Today, I'll review Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77 number 5. Issue number 5 was cover dated July 2017. The sweet cover art does include Batgirl on her Batgirl cycle and was provided by Michael and Laurel Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. Writers are Mark Andranko and Jeff Parker. The penciler was David Hahn, Carl Kessel was the inker, and Mad Pencil did the colors. This issue opens on the outskirts of Gotham City in 1977 with Wonder Woman on her motorcycle, wearing her dark blue accompanying uniform from the TV show, tracking down a bootlegger delivering what appears to be contraband beer to Killer Croc, working for someone who's unidentified. Wonder Woman makes quick work of Croc. Commissioner Gordon appears, but we find that the commissioner is now Barbara Gordon. She's with Chief O'Hara, who we see as the daughter of the man we know from the show, and just like her dad, she speaks with an Irish accent. Barbara thanks Wonder Woman, and tells her that she's ascended to her now-retired father's position. Wonder Woman notes that the League of Shadows symbol is on one of the boxes, and asks if Barbara can summon Batman by Bat-Signal, but Barbara tells her that Batman has hung up his cowl after a battle with the Joker a couple of years ago, and an adult Robin, now going by Nightwing, has taken his place. Wonder Woman makes her way to... Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne, and a not-so-youthful ward anymore, Dick Grayson, 
and Bruce takes her down to the Batcave, and he confirms what she's already been told. Batman hung up the cowl, and the reason was after a deadly confrontation with the Joker, after he discovered Bruce's identity. We also learn that Alfred has now died, his heart unable to handle the shock of a manor invasion. Wonder Woman asks for Bruce's help, but he hands her a tracking device to help her find Nightwing. We find Nightwing is at one side of Snake Creek Canyon on his motorcycle, and on the other side of the canyon, the villain Copperhead has Catwoman seized. Nightwing successfully jumps the canyon, and Wonder Woman gets Catwoman free from Copperhead's grip, with Nightwing capturing Copperhead in a net. We learn Catwoman is now reformed, and she hosts our heroes in a private room above a disco she knows, where they all confer. Wonder Woman states that Ra's al Ghul is back, but she is unsure why. Catwoman provides a reason. When Talia hired Catwoman, back in issue one, to steal Mr. Finley's books, Catwoman restole them, and she did it for the treasure maps that they contained. Nightwing forwards the maps electronically to Bruce back in the Batcave, and they all simultaneously work on the maps and eventually, and separately, come to the realization that they are the locations of Lazarus Pits, one of which is under Arkham Asylum. At the very same moments, Talia appears and grabs Catwoman from behind at her throat, and Rachel Ghoul, with minions in tow, announces to Bruce that he has breached the Batcave. To be continued! Wow, okay, I hope someone besides myself got these uh, nice 70s pop culture references that we had here. The opening bootlegging bit appears to be a nod to the other film that came out in 1977, besides Star Wars, Smokey and the Bandit. Here it appears that the beer in question is called Sewers, a takeoff of Coors beer, which was used in the movie. Nightwing's motorcycle jump is reminiscent of Evil Knievel's unsuccessful attempt to cross the Snake River Canyon in 1974 by a rocket-looking sky cycle. Before Wonder Woman arrives, we see that Bruce Wayne is listening to the King Biscuit Flower Hour on the radio, something a lot of people did back then, as it was a popular syndicated show. But who knew that's what Bruce's music tastes were suited to? The artwork here is exceptional, and we have some nice touches. Bruce's bat pole appears to be bigger than Dick's, something that others have noticed who watch the TV show. In the Bat Cave, we see uh, what appears to be his mother pearls on a strand next to uh, an urn with a picture of his father. Bruce and Talia's hair now appears to be somewhat gray now. And speaking of hair, we see that Nightwing is now working some very noticeable chest hair. I think many fans of the Batman series would wonder how an adventure would look 10 years after the show went off the air. I seem to have a memory of Adam West posing the thought to himself that if he had happened uh, to do such a show, he'd get a call to a case and they'd uh, open the panels to the Batcave and all this dust would float into the den. Like Wonder Woman's sad expression in the cave, I was a bit sad too seeing Bruce resign to the self-imposed, quote, retirement. Uh, not a version of Bruce we've seen in his later years and all the depictions I've seen of the character in various incarnations in the media and in comics. The details of what exactly happened with the Joker are unclear. We're just given barely enough facts of a reason, which will have to suffice for now. I'm a bit at odds coming to the grips that uh, this would bat world would be a bit darker in this following decade. There is the mention that Batgirl and Batman worked together for a while. Possibly this could have happened when, if there was a season four and Dick went off to college, Bruce and Barbara would have worked together. Uh, inexplicably, Wonder Woman has Batman bound up with the golden lasso on the cover of this issue, but we do have Batgirl on the cover, and it's the all-red, so I'll let it go. Over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gave this 3.5 out of 5 stars. I'm going to give Batman 66 means Wonder Woman 77 number 5 9 out of 10 bats. We finally get a glimpse of to the post-66 Batman world, and while it's not too pretty, it 
does have a lot of heart and it tugs at your emotions. Plus, we have Catwoman, now seemingly reformed, working as a heroine, and we've got Barbara Gordon, and we've got a double cliffhanger. This is excellent stuff. Okay, so as promised, I said I'd talk about my favorite Wonder Woman episodes from the 70s. So I came up with a top 10 list, and and I'm going to include two parters as one. And here they are in no particular order. Uh, I do want to give an honorable mention, though, to a couple of episodes. Uh, We had one called The Man Who Could Move the World. This was from Season 2. It involved some scenes of Wonder Woman 77, but they had some scenes back from World War II. This involved a gentleman who had telekinetic powers, who is of Japanese descent, and he blamed Wonder Woman for the death of his brother. This was pretty emotional stuff. Also, an honorable mention to the episode entitled I Do, I Do from Season 2. A bit cheesy and a little bit uncomfortable comfortable watching some of the uh, scenes in the massage parlor where a masseuse tries to work out government secrets from wives of government officials. However, in the opening scene, we do get, if anything, we do see Wonder Woman or rather Diana Prince get married. Although it's a ruse and it's not to see Trevor, I did think the wedding scene was something a bit unusual and a bit shocking for an opening of the series. Very 70s style wedding gown and that's all I'm going to say about it. But those are the honorable mentions. Okay, so in no particular order, we also had the pilot, which was the first episode of the show, technically. Uh, this was the one inter- uh, episode that introduced us to Wonder Woman. It was very faithful to the comic book. I believe Stanley Ralph Ross had written this, and this was really, really good stuff. Very, very faithful to the source material, and it kind of set the tone for the show. Follow it up. I'm going to list Fosta, the Nazi Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman gets a Nazi equal counterpart. This is again from season one. It starred, uh, co-starred, guest starred rather, Linda Day George as Fosta. The Feminine Mystique, parts one and two. We get a glimpse of Paradise Island and what life is like there. Uh, we have Carolyn Jones as the Queen Mother. And of course, we've got the introduction of Deborah Winger as Wonder Woman's sister Drusilla as Wonder Girl. We've got a Nazi invasion of Paradise Island. So this is really interesting stuff. Judgment from Outer Space, parts one and two. This was, I would take it as uh, sort of a modern day parable or moral story about uh, an allegory with war and a lesson to be learned here. This is set then in the present, but with something that could be looked at for by today's worlds and just kind of examining where are we going as, as a world in a with race population uh, in, in agreement and with warfare. Decent stuff. Next up, I had Formula 407 on my list. This was a light tale set in Buenos Aires. Uh, we had some great chemistry, I thought, between Lyle Wagner and Linda Carter in this particular episode. Next up, I had Wonder Woman in Hollywood. This is another one that had a guest star appearance of Deborah Winger. Had Robert Hayes from Airplane in it. Not... Maybe a strong episode, but again, anything that has Deborah Winger in it, I'm going to probably elevate a little bit. I always liked her appearances on the show. Moving on to season two, we've got an episode called Ansklis 77. A couple of things of note here. This was a plot to clone Hitler, of all things, but it also contained a scene with Linda Carter doing a stunt where she's hanging from a helicopter. Very dangerous stunt. She did <laughs> not make her producers very happy once they discovered that uh, she did this. But a lot of worthwhile things to watch with this episode. Next, going from there, I had the Deadly Toys on my list. This episode guest starred Frank Gorshin as an evil toy maker. And I thought, although we didn't see a lot of Gorshin, and he's 
disguised as an old man throughout the episode. I think Gor- anything Gorshin does is excellent, and it just really uh, elevated the episode to me. Screaming Javelin made my list. This guest starred Henry Gibson, who I find is a very, very good villain. Uh, perhaps uh, one of the more lighthearted episodes, he plays a villain called Mariposa, who is this evil despot who's trying to get... Uh, he's a ruler of a small country, and he's trying to kidnap... Uh, top athletes from other parts of the world to compete so he can, uh, his country can have the most gold medals in, in the Olympics. Bizarre plot. I'll grant you that, but Henry Gibson is excellent in this episode. And that's why I put it on my top test. Finally, uh, if there was something equivalent to the Batman 66 third season episode surfs up jokers under for that, I think the equivalent here for wonder woman, that would be Galt's brain from season three. <laughs> this is where this is where a disembodied uh, brain with this little eyeball sticking out of a jar is uh, has applied. I think David Carradine is in this episode. Uh, a top athlete specimen is kidnapped, and uh, his brain is going to be inserted into this male form. Yes, the effects are, are what you could expect by 1970s TV standards, but I think everyone remembers Galt's brain, who was a fan of this show. So I, I felt compelled to include David Carradine, Galt's brain. Like I said, what what surfs up Joker's Hunter was to Batman 66. This episode was to Wonder Woman 77. I'd be curious as to what your favorites are. I know this is these my episodes on my list are, may not be every other Wonder Woman fan cup of tea, but there you have it. There's my personal choices. For what it is, there you go. I, I'd be curious to see if anyone really has a strong protest going either way with what their list might be. I know I left out some others. I think admittedly, even for the most hardcore Wonder Woman TV fans out there, you have to admit there were some not so great episodes of the show, some ones where the plot wasn't as strong, but some all had their unique charm. And what can you say? Linda Carter was a great, great Wonder Woman. So some episodes more watchable than others. In my next segment, I'll finally answer the question. If I prefer the first season World War II episodes to the latter season, than present day episodes. However, you may be able to guess my answer based on my list. I got a comment from Rich Matsumoto, who had this to say on the Batgirl to Oracle Facebook page. I'm just now listening to the episode from April. I just heard Chris's review of Batman 66, and you went over some notable guest stars from Season 1. And of course, he mentioned Lyle Wagner, who played Steve Trevor. If I call Lyle Wagner, didn't he, we, wasn't he one of the finalists along, of course, Adam West to be Bruce Wayne in the original TV show, Batman 66? I could be wrong, but I remember reading or hearing that somewhere a while back. Great podcast, as always, and as always, entertaining. Well, thank you very much for writing, Rich. You're absolutely correct, and shame on me for not mentioning it before. Yes, Lyle Wagner did audition for Batman, and there are test reels that exist, and you can watch them on YouTube. They're very, very interesting to see. An actor named Peter Dial screen-tested along with Lyle Wagner, and Dial was Dick Grayson and Robin. So those are really, really worthwhile. You can find those on YouTube. You could really see the comparison side by side because in some of the clips, they'll play them along with the Adam Westbert Ward screen test, and they're acting out the same scenes together. You could kind of see the chemistry. I don't think Wagner would have been that bad as Batman, but you can you can understand why they went with Weston Ward. And hey, we got Lyle Wagner, who did a great Steve Trevor. So, Rich, I want to thank you very much. I appreciate you writing in. I can't thank you enough, and I hope you continue to listen to the show. Before I go, I want to give a shout-out again to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out Warlord Worlds, Trucker Talk, and Xenozoic Xenophile Podcasts. They're really great stuff. Warlord Worlds examines Mike Grell and his artwork, Trucker Talk. 
looks at the character Mercy St. Clair, strong female character in the artwork of Ron Randall, Xenozoic Zeophiles, looks at Mark Schultz and the Cadillac of Dinosaur series. Great, great artwork there. Listeners, I am now on Twitter at BTO and Bat Books. I'll tweet about my weekend nightstand reads, old Batman comic books, and I put out a Saturday morning salute where I tweet a pic of an old TV listing from Saturday mornings, uh, and among other things. So if you're interested of things of your <laughs> or other whatnots, I hope you like it and give it a try. If you're not already following, I hope you check it out. And more so if you're not following, just give it a follow. The handle is spelled B-T-O-A-N-D-B-A-T-B-O-O-K-S. BTO for Batgirl Oracle and Batbooks, as in Batbooks for Beginners. That's the other podcast that I can be found on. Yes, the Batbooks for Beginners podcast that I co-host with Jerry Green. That's the podcast where we examine and review trade paperbacks and collected material of Batman or related characters. Listeners, please feel free to leave any comments for myself, for this segment, or for the podcast on the TBU website or Facebook. And please consider leaving us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and a fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your kind support. If you wish to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And once again, thank you for your support. Will Catwoman escape from the clutches of Talia? What does Rachel Ghoul want of Bruce Wayne? Will Bruce Wayne ever wear his Batman costume again? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these juicy, jolting, jarring, jaw-dropping, joyless, juvenile jumbles will be answered next time. Same Batstella feed, same Batstella sight. Thanks, Chris. Well, just wrapping up now again a quicker episode, which I think people, sometimes they get texts that say there's something wrong. BTO says it's only 70 minutes, and then I have to write back and say, no, actually, it really is only 70 minutes. I mean, that's what you get when you've got recaps here and also that I'm by myself. See, it's not me. It's my co-hosts. They're just full of hot air, and they talk and talk and talk, and I just sit there, and I listen and I learn. But it's not me, folks, that pulls the runtime up. So anyways... My literature recommendations, I have three of them, two of which I've actually read fully and one of which I'm currently reading, but I feel confident enough to actually say and recommend it. First up, it's Dune by Frank Herbert, set on the desert planet Arrakis. Dune is the story of the boy Paul Atreides, who would become the mysterious man known as Muad'Dib. He would avenge the treacherous plot against his noble family and would bring to fruition humankind's most ancient and unattainable dream. I had heard rumblings of Dune recently. A student had said that he had read it and really liked it. And I thought, oh, you know, I think this is probably my wheelhouse. I enjoy Game of Thrones. And so I, th- I started reading it, and it's a quick read, even though it's 800 pages long. I really liked it, and I think I might read the next two. That Those are the ones that were recommended if I'm going to read any more, read the next two and then stop. But I kind of want to see the movie, I think. I'm not, I know there's a movie with that guy that was in Twin Peaks, and I think there was also a TV movie, but I can't find that one to watch, so I might have to rent the other one. The effects look really funny. But anyways, I I very much recommend this. There are some weird time jumps. Just, I guess maybe the author doesn't want to go into details of battle, but you'll just be reading about that battle is to come, and then the next chapter will be like, it'll give some sort of 
introductory quote or, or statement from a journal and then it'll basically letting you know that the time has skipped and then it'll have the after effects. So that was a little jarring, but at least you could keep up because of those quotes that started the chapters. The other book is My Cousin Rachel by Daphne du Maurier. Philip, Ashley's older cousin Ambrose, who raised the orphan Philip as his own son, has died in Rome. Philip, the heir to Ambrose's beautiful English estate, is crushed that the man he loved died far from home. He is also suspicious. While in Italy, Ambrose fell in love with Rachel, a beautiful English and Italian woman. But the final brief letters Ambrose wrote hint that his love had turned to paranoia and fear. Now Rachel has arrived at Philip's newly inherited estate. Could this exquisite woman who seems to genuinely share Philip's grief at Ambrose's death really be as cruel as Philip imagined? Or is she the kind, passionate woman with whom Ambrose fell in love? Philip struggles to answer this question knowing Ambrose's estate and his own future will be destroyed if his answer is wrong. So I had seen the older film version of this and... I had gotten interested in reading it because a new film version is coming out on the 9th of June with Rachel Weisz. And so I want to read it before seeing that. So it's ambiguous because you don't really know for a fact if Rachel was poisoning these people. And it seems like it's there's just a lot of evidence that point to her and even things near the end point to her. But then there's one letter that makes it really ambiguous what she was doing. But one letter cannot absolve her or redeem her. So in the end, spoiler alert, she does die. In the end, you're sort of wondering like, oh dear, was she, you know, was she is innocent or was she guilty? Uh, but overall, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, of course, you know that I like Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. So this was uh, a fun read as well. Fun as in <laughs> slightly frustrating just because I couldn't understand why Philip was falling for this woman when he hated her without knowing her and then all of a sudden he's being duped and other people who were on Rachel's side then turned against Rachel. It was, whoo, man. Daphne du Maurier definitely knows how to spin a tale for sure. And the final one, which I've not completely read yet, I'm about halfway through, is The Zookeeper's Wife by Diane Ackerman. After their zoo was bombed, Polish zookeepers Jan and Antonina Zabinski managed to save over 300 people from the Nazis by hiding refugees in the empty animal cages. With animal names for these guests and human names for the animals, it's no wonder that the zoo's codename became The House Under a Crazy Star. Best-selling naturalist and acclaimed storyteller Diane Ackerman combines extensive research and an exuberant writing style to recreate this fascinating true life story, sharing Antonina's life as the zookeeper's wife while examining the disturbing obsessions at the core of Nazism. So this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Obviously, the Zabinskis are heroes, right, with what they had done and, and helped and saved so many Jews from death basically and taking secreting them out from the ghetto and i saw the film and really liked the film and wanted to read this and so it had just come in and so here we are so i recommend all three of those books and dune's gonna take you a little while so be sure you have time to spend on that one but the other two were quicker reads well remember you can send any questions or comments to backroll oracle at gmail.com 
Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support TBU by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Stay tuned after the show again if you want to hear my thoughts before and after on Alien Covenant. But until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? Hello, this is Stella. As many of you know, I don't want you to watch. Shh. As many of you may have known, I enjoy the alien films, and I'm sitting here ready to watch Alien Covenant. And I'm here with someone else who enjoys the alien films, Jacob. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> and I have also contracted his mother, Dina, which, if you recall, Shag knows about Dina and thinks very highly of her, to come with us. Here's Dina. Hello, everyone. So the first question is, Dina. Why have you decided to come with us today? Well, I like gratuitous use of the F word, especially when it's about 35 times. What convinced you to come see this movie? Well, just the opportunity to spend time with you and Jacob. That's always a blast. Thanks for including me, and you paid for my ticket. I was going to say, the only reason you came was because I paid for your ticket. What are you expecting out of this film? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) <laughs> I thought she was going to add to that. I did previously to this give her like a three-minute synopsis of Prometheus, which is harder than you would think. But I think I got it. Do you kind of understand what's happening? Yes, I sort of do. And I assume that I'm going to be enlightened pretty quickly in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, as a fan who has watched Alien, Aliens, and Prometheus, what are your expectations for this film? I'm just excited to see the classic Xenomorph, and I am just excited for how this is going to continue the series, and hopefully we're going to get an Alien 5 sooner or later. We can only hope. I myself really am expecting to best understand how something can come out of a throat and a back and a tum-tum, because I just don't understand that. So, But I'm super excited. I've been waiting for this for a long time. So we will get back to you after the film for post-reactions, specifically from Dina. (laughs) So, see you soon.
Hello, it's Stella. Back with Jacob and Dina, and we survived. We're two hours out, or well, we, we finished Alien Covenant. We're just outside of it. So I'm going to accost Dina first. So Dina, what are your thoughts following seeing this film? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you, Stella, for treating me to that movie, <laughs> and so also for the peanut M&Ms yeah? that made it all so, so Fire. good. Um, well, I'd like to say first that I think probably about only about 20 of the F-words were gratuitous, so I think the other ones were, were not. Okay. Um, also, um, I don't know. I think at, at one point, I like I told you, I was laughing a little, um, which surprised me. I never had to cover my face or, or my ears, so that was a little bit of a disappointment. I think oh. once, you've, once you've lived through the 80s and Freddy Krueger and Jason and um, The Shining and some of those other that I've um, tortured myself with. This was a little bit tame. And I think even maybe the original Alien was a little bit scarier. I'm not sure if that's just um, wishful recollection or what that is. But um, all in all, it, it mm, I enjoyed the time I spent with you and Jacob. So that's always um, never a waste of time. So thank you again. What can we learn or what can people learn about touching unknown things after seeing this film? Well, obviously, you would always just not do that. I mean, it's, <laughs> and, and, you know, there's wisdom in washing hands and um, all those lessons I've taught my children, I think, came into play here. And, yeah. Thank you. Jacob, what are your thoughts? Since this has been built up a great deal, you're slightly spoiled, you've been feeding me lots of uh, sci-fi news articles, so did this hold up to your expectations? All in all, this movie was fantastic. It definitely lived up to the hype. I was definitely pleased with what I saw on the screen, and it was a, a wonderful experience. I enjoyed it a lot. Did Ferris deserve her fate since she left Corrine in there with the uh, with all that stuff that happened? She had that coming. That was a terrible thing to do. I think of the, you know, 35 F-words. You said 15 were allowable. I think all the F-words that were allowable came particularly from Corrine because when you're trapped in a room with an alien, I think you have a right to explode some F-words. I also liked <laughs> So if that ever happens to me, just be prepared. Let me out, <laughs> Uh, I also really liked it. Um, I was prepared for lots of this stuff, but I think it was intense. Maybe not, like, super frightening, but I think I was certainly... It was suspenseful. And the end uh, was a bit anticlimactic, but also a little scary because now you're like, "Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen? And you built up liking these characters. It's very Uh, open-ended. I'm looking forward to seeing what Mr. Scott does with his future films. Dina, did you grow to care about the the Covenant crew at all? Um, probably Walter. Yes, I was very sad about Walter, not to give anything away. Um, yeah, I was a little puzzled about the Last Supper picture at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, that was puzzling to me. Thought we could have explored the the faith issue a little bit better. So yeah, maybe in the next one. Yeah, both people with faith because if you remember, uh, what was her name? No, the other one that I said, oh, she's lasted longer than I thought she would. Josie. No, Rosie. 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 If when she took off her jacket, did you notice that she had a Star of David on? I did not notice that. Okay, I don't know if there's some sort of Ridley Scott 
mm-hmm. agenda there. Who knows? <laughs> uh, did you grow to care about the crew? I did. I did. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say so that I don't spoil it. But <laughs> I, yeah, I, I feel like I was a little more attached to the Prometheus crew because we got to explore uh, their different skills and their different um, agendas more. Um, but definitely I was attached to Daniels and to Tennessee. Oh, yes. So final question, would you recommend it? Would you see it again? Um, I wouldn't recommend it, and, and I wouldn't see it again. <laughs> Why wouldn't you recommend it? Well, it, like I said, it was a little um, anticlimactic, okay. but I would see another movie with you and Jacob. Oh, recommended? See it again, Jacob. Absolutely would recommend it. It was the alien film that I've been waiting for for a long time. Um, I don't know if I'd see it again with my mother because <laughs> of the nature of the film. However, yes, I, I think I would see it again. And I recommend it for any Alien fans. I don't think it's a casual moviegoer, and I think you kind of need to see Prometheus to Definitely. back it up. One other comment. Oh, yeah, please. Um, I just think in general, rated R movies aren't are unnecessary. <laughs> okay, so, explain. Um, just a lot of... Yeah, just for effect. Uh-huh. And I think I think um, if you're really intelligent and really um, savvy, I think you can get your point across without the need for a an R rating. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the three of us can get by everyday life without dropping any sort of f bombs. True, true so, that. Yeah, and I so I recommend it, and I would see it again. But I think I might like Prometheus slightly more, if only because of Elizabeth Shaw, perhaps. But this one, I think we got all the creatures and everything mm-hmm. that we wanted, and I think it got closer to Alien, perhaps. But you well, hear that shag? Prometheus is good. Ooh, shagalicious. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, this has been Stella, Jacob, and Dina for the last time, and hopefully you enjoy this. Goodbye. Fly on, Babs lovers. Good night, everyone. Hey, it's Stella on her own now, and I want to do a bit of a postscriptum, mainly because I didn't want to keep <laughs> poor Dina and Jacob waiting outside of the movie theater while I did this or gave more of my thoughts. But also, I had you know a half an hour ride back to my place for me to think about it, and I felt bad saying that the ending was anticlimactic, and I find it hard to put into words what I actually mean about the ending. I think with Alien and Aliens, you sort of have a really nice ending with hope, I think, attached to it. And even Prometheus, there was, well, besides the Deacon, of course, at the post credit scene, you had, I think, a hopeful look to what could be with David and Elizabeth Shaw as they go off and try to find the meeting and, and ask the creators or engineers why. And With this one, it's not a hopeful message. It leaves you with discomfort because you you find out or you realize who is now actually on board of the ship. It it leaves you concerned. So even though Tennessee and Daniels were able to survive what happened to them, now they're very vulnerable because they're in their cryosleep and, of course, there's somebody with them that uh, they can't trust. So that's what I mean, I guess, anticlimactic in the fact that you want it to be the conclusion and nice and have hopeful at the ending, but now like there's something 
you find out that the villain is there and <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it and basically ends. So I think that's what it me- I mean by anticlimactic, just that you just found out a big story point and bam, the movie's done. So that just leaves me a little concerned. I also want to go in a little bit more by saying what I mean by Prometheus, liking that slightly more. And I think a lot of it has to do with getting to know the crew a little bit more. At one point during the film, I turned to Jacob and I said, I wish I knew what their specialties were, because that was something nice about Prometheus, where each of them had a particular specialty, biologists, geologists, there was a, a technicians, a medical officers, things like that. And you, it wasn't like given to you an exposition, but it you found out along the way, you know, who they were. And this was something you kind of had to figure out as you were going along. Even for the most part, I couldn't really tell besides the pilot, uh, the medical officer, which you don't even know is a medical officer until basically the end because she's been doing a lot of the crew work while the people uh, of Covenant have are down on the ship. You know about, I guess biologists, geologists, ecologists, I don't know, Kareen, and then other people you're just kind of maybe thinking that they're military, um, maybe some of the Marines, uh, colonial Marines, who knows. But that's just something I wish I could, we could have gotten to know them a little bit better. And one of the questions I have is with some of this material that we were gifted before the movie came out, for instance, I think like a five-minute prologue called The Last Supper, and you get to, you know, Daniels makes a little speech and says, you all have sacrificed so much to be here. You see all the couples, you get to know that they are couples because you're only sort of figuring it out to begin with. Um, I'm a little puzzled as to why we didn't get to see that, nor did we get to see the video... I guess it's also a prologue with David and Elizabeth and how she repaired him and he drew that little childlike picture of her and gave it to her and she went to cryosleep and then they landed on the engineer's planets. We didn't get to see that either, so I'm a little confused if that was just promotional material. Why wasn't it in? Because I think that would have helped a great deal for us to get to know the crew as well as what was going on. Now, the only thing I could think of is that because we have found out that Ridley Scott wants to do another one, and it's actually number two, right? So Prometheus is one. Covenant is actually three in a trilogy. He's going to go back and make Awakening, which is number two. So my only hope is that perhaps we get the prologue, um, maybe is Elizabeth and David getting to know them, and then the end, perhaps, is that Last Supper, and and that's how they the bridge, bridge the gap there. But with the, with Daniels in particular, and her relationship to Walter the android, you see that they have a close bond. There are some really beautiful moments, um, especially with her talking about building the log cabin and him saving her life. And I wonder, it's clear that he is close to her and I think she is close to him, as, as we see at the end. My question is why? And I think there's certainly backstory and history there that the movie didn't necessarily offer. So I think those are some of the questions that I have. Um, I, (laughs) of course, the movie raises more questions, um, especially now it seems like perhaps David's a creator, uh, which he was unhappy being created, right? He says things about not wanting to be a servant. So now it seems like he's the one who created these eggs. But (laughs) it begs the question how that 
went about. Uh, he's just been doing lots of tinkering, it seems, and has created it, unless I'm really far off. But you kind of wonder how this is possible. Did he create a queen or whatever that happened? But I'm hoping that something will happen. And my final sort of thoughts are, goodness gracious, do not touch things that you don't understand or strange things, because lots of bad things were happening with the touching. And also, <laughs> no, seriously, because, the, you know, this touching and then something came out of what you were touching and then it entered somebody's body and then basically you go from there. The other thing I have to say is that Ferris... <laughs> goodness gracious karma really came back to bite her so annoyed i can't believe she locked kareen in that room number one wouldn't let her out then she's going on also she's leaving she's going back and forth leaving her and trying to get other people there and why aren't you here i mean it's not like they had a teleporter to get there right there get to her right away but also she was saying about there's an infection you know we need to close it down but there's blood on her face so if even if that were true she needed to be in that same area so that was super frustrating that's the one character that annoyed me the most certainly because kareen could potentially be alive i don't know uh but oh well so i did enjoy it i think it was what we were looking forward to people who didn't like prometheus because they thought it was slow and more philosophical i think we'll like this one because it is more action oriented i second dina's thought that it's not as scary but again i will say that it's suspenseful and i do think that there are differences between those two it answers questions but i think it also asks questions and you do get close to the crew but like dina said i think in particular daniel's in tennessee but there are questions that arise especially with daniel's relationship with walter and now i just wonder what's next and if we're doing awakening we're not going to see daniel's in tennessee so will we know about the fate of the covenant and that colonist mission and when will that be but i think that's all for now so i'm going to sign off and i hope you enjoyed this little i don't know train what are those called <laughs> get off on a weird tangent yeah tangent there we go um but uh i really like alien so i'm glad i could go and see that and spend time with dina and jacob and i do recommend you guys check out alien covenant see you guys later